my distinct pleasure to be joined by the author of a tremendous book about my former UConn broadcast partner, Marty Glickman. Jeffrey Gurak wrote the book called Marty Glickman, The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me this morning to talk about this great man that I knew quite well. Did you know Marty Glickman, and what was your inspiration for writing the book about Marty? Well, I never had the privilege of actually meeting uh, Marty Glickman, although a few days before he passed away, uh, I was supposed to be on a, in a seminar with him, and he didn't show up, and unfortunately, he died soon thereafter. However, I was a kid growing up in the Bronx. You can hear my Bronx accent uh, in the 50s and 60s, and he was part of my life. Uh, I listened to his broadcast under the covers with a transistor radio. Uh, when I played basketball on the street, if I made a basket, I would yell out, swish, and that was the way uh, Marty Glickman did that uh, call. You know, before you had Marv Albert saying yes, and before you had Iron Eagle saying book it, and before you had Mike Breen saying bang, you had Marty Glickman's voice. So everybody of my generation in New York and really in the tri-state area listened to Marty Glickman, and he was part of our youth, part of our, he was the voice of my youth, and he was so special to all of us as a broadcaster. So one of the goals of this book was to evoke a very different era in terms of uh, New York and tri-state area sports, and Marty Glickman was uh, an iconic figure. You know, when the Knicks began in 1946, he was the, the announcer. He was the announcer from Yankee Stadium. He was the announcer we listened to. Uh, your listeners may not know this, but in the early days of the NFL, home games were blacked out. So we listened to Marty Glickman on the radio. The only way you could, you could see the game is by driving 75 miles from New York City and, and go to a cheap hotel and watch the game on Channel 3 from New Haven. But you, listen to, you watch the game from New Haven, but you listen to Marty Glickman. So I didn't have the privilege of knowing him, although I interviewed members of his family, and uh, I got to know Marty Glickman up close and personally by interviewing so many people he mentored, including yourself, and you appear in the book as one of the people who uh, Marty Glickman worked with uh, doing UConn games. You traveled with him, and also you're one of the first people to whom Marty Glickman revealed the trauma of what happened to him in 1936. So do I, did I know Marty Glickman as a scholar? Yes, I did, although, again, I didn't have the privilege of ever meeting him. Jeffrey, I want to go back to the, the phrases you talked about a moment ago with Marty and the other protégés of Marty over the years. Tell the story of what it means, because I don't know that people around here know this as much unless they were living down there at the time. But tell the story of Marty calling a basketball game and saying, good, like Needix. Right, right. Well, Needix was this very cheap hot dog store uh, near the old garden on 49th Street and 8th Avenue. And people went to the garden, they ate these horrible hot dogs, and they had the orange soda, and then they went upstairs to the balcony of the old garden, and uh, Needix was one of his uh, announcers, one of his uh, sponsors. So if the Knicks made a good basket, he would say, good, just like Needix. 
Well, it was good as far as the basketball is concerned. I can't vouch for the quality of the food at Needix, but it's part of the legacy of Marty Glickman. When you went to a game, you hung out in the ro- under the rotunda, and then you rushed upstairs to your seats. And if you were unfortunate enough not to have tickets that, that day, you listened to Marty Glickman. You know, so many people who went to games live – For example, they'd go to Yankee Stadium and watch the Giants play, or later on, uh, the Jets. They'd watch the game and have the radio on on their ears so they could hear Marty Glickman's iconic iconic, uh, accounts of the game. One time, I was listening to the game in my home in the Bronx, and Marty Glickman said, it was a very close game, Marty Glickman said during a timeout, he said, open your windows and yell, Go, Giants, go. Go, Giants, go. You know, there was a movie done much later called Network, and you have Howard Beale yelling, I'm mad as hell, and I can't take it anymore. Uh, Marty Glickman inspired all of us. He was our cheerleader, if you're a Giant or a Jet or a Nick fan. So that's part uh, of his uh, legacy. I'll give you another one, Jeffrey, and he did this a couple times in my years working with him on the Connecticut Radio Network, and and that was, you'd get a a dramatic game, a dramatic finish to the game, and Marty'd say, if you just tuned in, where have you been? I'm guessing you heard that line a couple of times, too. Well, uh, when I started doing the book, a friend told me a story that he was driving on the Sawmill River Parkway in Westchester, New York State. And the game was very close, and Marty was broadcasting. It was a two-minute <clears throat> two warning. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Marty says, if you're within the sound of my voice, pull off the road. I don't want to cause any accidents. And I thought my friend was making up that story until I read an account by Mike Burke, who later on became the uh, president of New York Yankees. He said he was driving on the Sawmill River Parkway, and people were pulling off the road. And then I interviewed another person of that era, and he said he was in Flatbush, Brooklyn, on Flatbush Avenue, in the left lane. And Glickman said, pull off the road. And he he weaved his way across three lanes in order to hear Marty Glickman's uh, account of the game. That's how powerful his lung power was uh, all over the tri-state area. And uh, he's remembered by people of my generation. And one of the reasons for doing this book is to tell the younger people about uh, what a great announcer he was and all the people that he influenced, like yourself, who he mentored, who he taught. He was also one of the first announcers to have women uh, broadcast games. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a game, and Beth Mowens was broadcasting. Well, Beth Mowens was one of his disciples as was Gail Serens, who was the first woman to broadcast an NFL game. So there are really warm memories of Marty Glickman with anyone who was involved in sports in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. That was, that was Marty Glickman. Yes, and by the way, he did use that line pull over during a dramatic part of a game a few times in our broadcast as well. Jeffrey, the book is about Marty Glickman. The subtitle of the book is The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend. And that's what so much of the focus of this book is about. And I don't think that people understand how much anti-Semitism that Marty faced over the years. But one thing that got my attention as I read the book, and knowing Marty as I did, is that Marty never talked about that much. He basically didn't fight the anti-Semitism that he faced. 
Do you think he should have spoken out more than he did at the time? Well, I think it's reflective of a particular era in American Jewish life. And Wayne, you were one of the first people who actually heard Marty Glickman tell a reporter, I think it was in Portland, Maine, what had happened to him in the 1936 Olympics, where he was supposed to run in a signature event, a 4 by 100 meter race in front of 80,000 people, including Adolf Hitler. And the day, bef- a day before the race, uh, the leaders of the American Olympic Committee said, you're not running, you're not running because the Germans have a great runner. And the reason they did that was these American Nazis, I'm sorry to call them what they were, um, didn't want to embarrass Adolf Hitler. But he kept it to himself in the same way that my parents' generation, who were second-generation Jews, were not outspoken. When they encountered anti-Semitism, what they did was they moved on. They didn't confront. We are of a different generation. I'm of different generation. And frankly, I'm talking to you during a very difficult time for the Jewish people today. And we're outspoken in terms of the support for Israel. That wasn't the way Jews behaved back in that time. So Marty Glickman uh, really kept it to himself. Only, and, and only later in, on in his life, he realized that he could be a teacher of American Jewish history. And in the last years of his life, he traveled the country under the auspices of the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum to tell his story. It's a different generation, a different uh, modality of behavior, but you're right, this was something very different from the way Jews behave today. So it, it is a book about sports, but ultimately, and you've nailed it, it isn't a sports book. It's a, it's a story of a second-generation Jew in America trying to make it in this country and all the difficulties that he faced as a Jew. And not only we're talking about the Berlin Olympics, when he comes back to America and he wants to, one of his great goals, and you know what, Wayne, maybe the saddest story in the entire book is that when, when the NBA was established, first it was the BAA and the NBA, um, he was a broadcaster for the national game. But the leaders of the NBA didn't want him to be a national broadcaster because he sounded too much like me, a New York Jew with a New York intonation. And they took him off the broadcast, so he became a great announcer for New York and the tri-state area, but not nationally. Why is this a sad story for me? Because the two people who sidelined him, their names were Maurice Padaloff, and Haskell Cohen. Both of them were Jews. They were leaders of the NBA. And they were frightened. They were intimidated. They felt that his voice would not be heard in Peoria or any place else. But, you know, through you and Marv Albert and Spencer Ross and all these other people, we're hearing his voice uh, intoned through the, uh, the airways to this very day. But it's very sad, but it's reflective of the way Jews were back then. So this is a book of American Jewish history. And frankly, if you have no interest in sports, you should read this book for what it tells you about what it means to be an American Jew of my parents' generation. Well, he was recruited to Syracuse. He was a tremendous athlete at Syracuse. But he did face some anti-Semitism at Syracuse. But as he began his career as a New York broadcaster, they wanted him to change his name for the same things you were just talking about. How close did I come to working with Marty Manning? 
on the UConn broadcast, Jeffrey. It's not only a Jewish story. One of the people I interviewed was Saul Marciano, a proud Italian-American. And when he started out in the business, he was told that he sounds, his name is Italian. Change your name. And he refused to do it. And many years later, after Sal Marciano became an important broadcaster, he ran into one of his childhood heroes, a fellow named Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra told him, I'm very proud of you because you didn't change your name, you didn't change your identity in order to make it uh, in America. So they wanted, they wanted Marty Glickman to be called Marty Mann or Marty Manning, and he refused to do it. He saw himself not as a religious Jew, but as a cultural Jew, but he had a great deal of pride in his Jewishness. And, of course, one of the saddest moments in his life was in 1972 when the 11 Israeli athletes were murdered by Palestinian terrorists. And when that happened, the head of the International Olympic Committee, his name was Avery Brundage, don't forget that name, after one day of mourning, the Israeli athletes said the games must go on. And it flashed back to Glickman 36 years earlier in 1936, where the instigator behind the sidelining of Marty Glickman and the other Jewish runner named Sam Stoller, who's been forgotten by history, who was involved, who was uh, mitigating this problem, who was creating this problem, it was Avery Brundage. And Avery Brundage, by the way, in 1912, uh, was involved when Jim Thorpe, an Indian uh, Native American, he lost his gold medals because they accused him of being a professional. Who was involved with that? The young Avery Brundage. So he was uh, of a generation, Brundage, of overt anti-Semites who wanted to see the Jews, and he wanted to see African Americans, and he wanted to see Native Americans sidelined. And sadly, to a great extent, they were successful. But it was a different era, and that's what Marty Glickman was up against. So yes, you're right in saying it's a book about anti-Semitism, but I think it's also a book about the triumph over anti-Semitism by someone who's remembered so favorably by so many people. I'm a very cynical guy. I've interviewed so many people. I couldn't find anyone who could say a bad word about Marty Glickman. In the business that you were part of, it's a cutthroat business. But Marty Glickman was someone who wanted to teach, he wanted to mentor, he wanted to influence, and towards the end of his life, he became Professor Marty Glickman, where he taught sports broadcasting at Fordham University. And as a lookout of my window, I can actually see Fordham University. And there's so many guys who were, to this day, credit Marty Glickman with helping them make it within this industry. And I, I know that's your story as well. You were not a New Yorker. You came from L.A., but you had, you had the privilege of traveling with Marty and uh, co-broadcasting co with him for UConn Games for a number of years. So you're a very lucky fella in that regard. And I appreciate that. And as we got to be better friends as we went along in our four-plus years of broadcasting UConn football and UConn men's basketball. And one thing, though, especially early on in our relationship that still stands out to me, I'm a stats guy. I really feel that stats help tell the story, especially basketball, shooting percentage, rebounding, things like that. But you can say it about football, too. Marty would often say, I don't care about stats. The only stat that matters is the final score. 
So there's where the two of us were on divergent paths. Any thoughts about Marty and stats? Did he ever talk about that? Uh, not really, except he said that as far as people listening to the broadcasts are concerned, the only person who's, who's keen to hear the broadcast is the broadcaster's mother. So he was speaking to the audience and not necessarily to people who today get involved with the uh, fantasy football. you excuse the expression. You know, I have two sons, and they're big fantasy football fans, and I can't stand it. I want to watch the game. So Marty Glickman said it's important to look at the game, not from the point of view of how many yards someone has or how many baskets someone's caught. He's speaking to a wider audience, and I think that's one of the teachings of Marty Glickman that's so, that's so very important. I think we're, we're so caught up in stats today, Marty Glickman would not have been happy with fantasy football, fantasy baseball, and things of that sort. Just tell it as it was. Uh, that was Marty Glickman's uh, approach. So for the best part of five years, I was the Al DeRogatis to Marty Glickman. Tell the folks what I'm talking about here, Jeffrey. For the folks who attended New York Giants football games or listened to them on the radio, it was Marty and Al DeRogatis. Uh, well, Dero, he would refer to him as Dero. Al DeRogatis would predict the plays before they happen in football. And I found out in doing this research that his brilliance was not only his understanding of football, but that he that the Rogatis sat with uh, Ali Sherman and other coaches of the Giants before the game, and he had some sense of what was going to happen. So yes, and and you talk about your traveling with uh, Glickman, he very happily shared the microphone with other people, and not only did the Rogatis uh, work with him, but Sam Huff. And some of the other great giants, after they finished their careers, were part of his, uh, his entourage. Not only that, if you, listen to, if you listen to some of the broadcasters, the sports broadcasters today, former athletes, many of them were disciples of Marty Glickman. So here's the irony, Wayne. When he starts out in the business in the 1940s, they want him to change his name. They want him to deny his heritage. By the 1980s, NBC is saying, hey, Marty, can you help us with Bob Greasy? Can you help us with Frank Gifford? Can you help us with these former athletes to make them into good broadcasters? So that was another one of his contributions, not to Jewish history, but to the history of broadcasting. A great, a great man and a, a great teacher for a generation of, of broadcasters, including yourself. You got that right. Jeffrey Gurok wrote this new book, just came out last week, Marty Glickman, The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend. Of course, Marty Glickman did almost five years of UConn football and UConn men's basketball with me. Jeffrey, one thing I think about that is when he died, all the papers did huge obituaries on Marty and his legacy in New York, and none of the obituaries mentioned his five years broadcasting UConn. Are you surprised that the UConn years didn't quite get told of the Marty Glickman legacy? Well, I, th I think the focus was on his core uh, geography, and that was, uh, that was uh, New York City. But uh, clearly, he was important for sports fans in, uh, at UConn as well. But you know what? There was a very interesting obituary that I reference in the book. Um, one of the people that uh, Glickman mentored 
was the great basketball player Bill Walton. And by the way, I just want to tell your audience how I get to, how I got to speak to all these people like yourself. Uh, once I found an email, I would send an email to these broadcasters like yourself, and I said, my name is Jeff Gerrock. I'm a professor of American Jewish history, and I have a contract, and I don't need, I'm not looking for any money. And if you're interested in speaking to me, please get back to me very, very soon. And people like yourself were very gracious in opening up their memories to me. But one of the most interesting interviews is one I did with Bill Walton. I sent him an email, and a few hours later, he calls me up and says, we have to talk. And then he says to me, uh, one of the most influential people in my life was Marty Glickman. And I said to him, what about John Wooden, the great coach of UCLA? He says, of course, Wooden was important, but Glickman was almost as important as John Wooden. So I was flummoxed by that until he explained to me that as a kid and as a young adult, he stammered terribly and therefore never did any interviews. And Marty Glickman, as a youngster, also had trouble speaking. And Marty Glickman taught him to overcome his liability, and now he is a, a broadcaster. So when Glickman died, the L.A. Times interviewed John Wooden about Marty Glickman. And they asked him, well, what do you think of Glickman? He says, oh, he was, he was okay, just okay. And they had a great line. He said, yeah, he taught Bill Walton to speak, and now Walton never shuts up. Okay, so that, that, was, that was the importance of Marty Glickman to, to Bill Walton. So uh, as far as obituaries, yeah, I think that uh, the, the, the New York uh, newspapers, it was an oversight. Because here you have a person who is renowned in New York who will spend five years at UConn doing football games and basketball games. And he saw this as something important to bring his voice not only to New York, but to Connecticut as well. So, yeah, I think it was an oversight as far as the, uh, uh, the New York newspapers were concerned. Well, of course, Marty, a great student athlete at Syracuse University. Let me tell you a story about that, that we're broadcasting a game, Marty and Wayne, up at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. And middle part of the second half, there's a timeout, and the PA guy says, before 33,000 people at the Carrier Dome, ladies and gentlemen, Syracuse University would like to welcome back to Syracuse the uh, great Syracuse football and track man, Marty Glickman. And Marty stands up and he you know, acknowledges the crowd and waves and sits back down. We come out of the commercial break and Marty starts talking about the game. And I guess this is one thing that he taught me. You're there. When you see something, talk about it on the radio. The listeners aren't. So when Marty got done with whatever he was talking about, I said, ladies and gentlemen, something pretty cool just happened here is that they recognized Marty Glickman on the PA system and 33,000 people stood up and cheered for my broadcast partner here. The point is that if left to his own devices, Marty would not have done that. He would not have identified what just happened because I think he was too modest to do that. So I filled in the gaps, and I'm glad I did. Well, you know what? It's the game, not the broadcaster. That was one of the things that he emphasized. And, you know, he had a, a very difficult relationship with another uh, Jewish broadcaster who grew up in Brooklyn, who was prominent during that era, a fellow named Howard Cosell. And Howard, uh, Howard Cosell's family... The original name of the family was Cohen, 
And uh, Marty believed, like so many other people believe, that uh, Cosell changed his name uh, in order to become more prominent in in the sports broadcasting world. Truth of the matter is, the family changed their name uh, before Howard was an adult. And the question of, of name change is something as we as historians constantly uh, work at. But what the difficulty that uh, uh, Marty had, and he spoke about it often, was that Howard Cosell felt that he was almost mo- no, he was more important than the game. That people tuned in to hear him. And Marty said, "It's not the broadcaster; it's the game that's most important." So they were not friends. The interesting thing is they came from similar backgrounds, both Brooklyn boys trying to make it in America, and uh, Marty uh, adhered to his background, and Howard was far more of an assimilated manner, although in fairness to Cosell, I have to say that the 72 Olympics and the murder of the Israeli athletes was a searing moment for him as well. But here you have these two broadcasters with two different approaches to what the game's all about. You tune in to hear the Yukon. You tune in to hear the Giants. You don't tune in, he believed, to hear Marty Glickman. (laughs) And Marty was wrong. Marty was wrong. We tuned in because we wanted to hear him. But he was modest and professional in all those types of things. The only way he broke from that is when he told New York audiences, open your windows in your apartments, in your tenements, and yell out, go Giants, go, go Giants, go. So, Marty, that's that's so great. You know, my longtime broadcast partner, Jody Ambrosio, who, by the way, was the guy that first filled in for Marty when he took ill as part of his uh, fifth season broadcasting on the Connecticut Radio Network. Joe and Wayne learned so much from Marty. And along those lines, in the 30 or so years that Joe was broadcasting UConn games with me, there would be little subtle tributes to Marty in those broadcasts. For example... Almost every game, as it was beginning, Joe would say, just the start of things. That's a Marty line. He did it as a tribute to Marty. He'd say the player brings the ball up over the blue midcourt line. That's Marty. Just want to just point out the fact that Joe and Wayne learned so much from Marty Glickman. You know, one other thing that happened in our CRN broadcast days, he was tight with Red Auerbach, great general manager of the Boston Celtics, the president of the Celtics. And every now and then, Red Auerbach would show up at a UConn game. I remember one in Hartford. I remember one at Boston College. And we give him earphones. And now there I am, sitting next to Marty Glickman, who I did for every game, and next to Red Auerbach. You talk about pressure to make sure what you say is right. But what an amazing thing. And then the point is that Red Auerbach actually was part of a broadcast team that broadcast UConn basketball. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, an, another Brooklyn Jewish boy, second-generation Jew, who makes it in the sporting world in America, uh, Red Auerbach. You know, when he did his broadcasts from the Garden at halftime, he'd bring up to the booth people like the great Joe Laptrick from St. John's or his uh, successor, Luke Conaseca, who I'm privileged to have as a friend, or back in the day, Nat Holman from City College, and does 15 minutes between the halves. The fans got it, got insight into how these great coaches were seeing what's going on. I think what we're both saying is his ability, his willingness to share his broadcast 
with not only with fans but with others is a tribute to his humility and and his modesty and his willingness to help others advance in the field. I don't have to tell you what a cutthroat industry you are part of, but in that industry, Marty Glickman stood out as someone who wanted to be uh, a teacher. You know, Cosell used to complain about the, what he called the jockocracy, about all these former athletes who are now broadcasting. Uh, but the funny thing was that uh, Howard Cosell had Dandy Don Meredith and, and, and Frank Gifford in the booth with him. And unbeknownst probably to Cosell, the person who made it possible for, for Gifford to be an announcer was, I guess you'd call him his nemesis, uh, Marty Glickman. Two good American Jewish stories about dealing with the world around them, the difficulties of, of broadcasting back, back in those days. Uh, one of the guys who changed his name was Marv Albert. But Marv Albert, his real name was Marvin Alfredic. And, and uh, Glickman said uh, I, 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 he can't use that name on the air. It's just too long. But, that, but that, that's part of Marty Glickman's legacy as well. Jeffrey Gurok, our guest, book just out, Marty Glickman, The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend. Jeffrey, we referred to this earlier, but I think that for the uninitiated, we should clarify what some of the details are of what happened at the 1936 Olympics and why Marty Glickman does not have a gold medal to show his grandchildren. That Jesse Owens had already won three gold medals at the 36 Olympics. So there's a black man in Aryan Germany up there on the stand, national anthem playing, gold medal on his neck, Hitler right behind him. And the idea was that they did not want a Jewish man in Aryan Germany, in Nazi Germany, getting the same thing. It's it's a stunning story. And there, there's a rest of the story, as Paul Harvey might say, too, and that's the the rage that Marty had about 30 years later when he went back to that Olympic stadium for the first time. He kind of held all that in, and it all came out when he went back to that stadium. He walks into the stadium, and he looks up at the box where Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, and these other bums are sitting, and he realizes, I'm here they're not here. And a wellspring of anger, a wellspring of anger flows out of him. And he realizes at that point that he has a story that has to be told about how he was marginalized. He was a great runner. And everything, Wayne, everything was going well for him in the Olympic Village. In fact, he and another Jewish athlete, a guy named Herman Goldberg, who played for the baseball team, uh, the American baseball team, they hitch a ride to the Olympic Stadium with a lieutenant in the Wehrmacht. So he's making it. He's fine. And then they tell him, because you're a Jew, you can't be in that race because Avery Brundage and his friends, including Dean Cromwell, who was the track coach at USC, and I want to say a word about that in a moment, they don't want to embarrass their friend Adolf Hitler. So why are blacks allowed to run? Because the Nazi image of blacks, and of course there were so many black athletes who were great, like, like uh, Jackie Robinson's brother, Mac Robinson, or uh, Ralph Metcalf, you couldn't exclude them all. So the way the Nazis projected this was that these black athletes were slaves. They were auxiliaries working for their white masters. That's the image of blacks. Jews are seen as far more nefarious, and they don't want to embarrass Adolf Hitler. 
I have to tell you a story that happened a few months ago as the book was getting ready to be published. It's not in the book, but I'm happy to share it with your audience. And that is, I, have, I am friendly with a rabbi in Los Angeles. I sent him, like I sent to you, a copy of the book in progress. And he read it, and then he was invited to speak to the USC, University of Southern California, track team that was about to go to Auschwitz on a consciousness-raising tour. And the coach of USC wanted to instruct these players, almost all of them not Jewish, about anti-Semitism, about racism, and the like. And I'm so proud to say that he took my book with him, this rabbi, and told the story of what happened in 1936. And the punchline is that the coach of USC, Dean Cromwell, who was an associate of Avery Brundage, was, the, was one of the people who sidelined Glickman. So now this rabbi is talking about to this track team in 2023 for all the problems that we face today in America. Look how things have changed and that the USC track club is going to Auschwitz as part of a consciousness raising tour. So, look, I'm an author. I'd love to sell a million books. But for me, this is a very warming experience. And if I ever write a sequel to this book, that's going to be in the uh, in the book because of the relevance it has for the contemporary day as well. I'm an L.A. guy, and I come back east, and I get hooked up with Marty, who I heard a little on the radio but did not know his legacy. And we're traveling. We're up in Maine, and an older writer from the Portland Press-Herald heard Marty was coming to town to broadcast a UConn football game. And I'm sitting in the room at the time when the guy's asking a lot of questions that I would have known to ask because I didn't know about Marty. To me, it was Vince Scully and Chick Hearn out there in L.A., and I heard this story about the 36 Olympics, and it was just jaw-dropping. And the one story that hangs out in my head all these years later is when he said, do you harbor any bitterness about what happened in the 36 Olympics from Avery Brundage and then Nazi sympathizers? He said only that I don't have a gold medal to show to my grandchildren. He was very tight with his family. Some of the grandkids came along with us to games along the way, and he would have won a gold medal for that tremendous 4 by 100 relay team. And eventually, Jesse Owens ran the anchor leg, and Jesse got a fourth gold medal in the 36 Olympics. Jeffrey, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Just want to say a couple of words about where people can get a copy of Marty Glickman, The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend. Well, it's available on Amazon. It's doing quite well, and I've gotten some favorable reviews of the book, but I hope people get a chance to read the book and learn from the book not only about sports history, but about the history of minorities, of racism, of anti-Semitism, which has relevance for the contemporary day as well. So that's, that's my goal is, as far as doing this book is concerned. And you told it so well, too. It's not just a sports book. There's a lot of cultural stuff. And uh, stuff about anti-Semitism as well. Marty Glickman, the life of an American Jewish sports legend. Jeffrey Gurrock, a pleasure connecting with you and talking this morning. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Wayne. Have a good day.